According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me once again, if you would, in the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 1, we're looking at the final verses of this chapter, verses 27 through 30, where the only thing Paul wants the Philippians to do is uh, to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And uh, that's a pretty big only when it comes right down to it. And uh, there's a lot that goes into that, including specific descriptions of what that might look like or examples of what it means to conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. He talks about uh, standing firm in one spirit with one mind. And that's our vocabulary of pneuma for spirit and suke for soul. And it says uh, uh, standing firm and striving together for the faith of the gospel. And standing together, or striving together is what we want to look at this morning. We ran out of time on Wednesday as we dealt with standing firm, and there's many passages in the scripture that address standing firm, Uh, but hopefully when we see uh, the participle that's in tandem with that, striving together, we're going to learn exactly how active it is to uh, to stand firm. Standing firm is not simply a passive thing of, of doing nothing. All right, that standing firm is a very active thing as we strive together for the faith of the gospel. And so we want to be clear on this as well. All right, before we do begin though, it's important that we take a moment for silent prayer. This is uh, our opportunity to, uh, to check where we are, if we're in fellowship or out of fellowship, to humble ourselves under authority. If we do need to confess our sins, this is the occasion to do that because our Father is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you this morning, thankful for your grace and truth, thankful for the blessing that we have to assemble together, recognizing, Father, that if worthiness was up to ourselves, then none of us would be worthy. Who are we? that we should enter into your presence, that we should be invited into your counsel. And yet, Father, by your grace, we've been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. I thank you that we've been baptized into union with Jesus Christ. His righteousness is our righteousness. And so, Father, here we are. We're not worthy ourselves, but in him we have every every worthiness he has. And Father, you are well pleased to bestow your truth upon us. I thank you for the teaching ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. He indwells each one of us, Father, and leads us into the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. So we call upon you this morning to open the eyes of our understanding and bless our time in your word. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so grammatically, where we are is uh, looking at a verb and looking at a participle. And that's what we have here in verse 27. And I listed it for you as point six. Standing firm is contemporaneous with striving together. Recognize that those two things are going hand in hand and that we start with a verb, the main verb. Thank you. Either half my flock was going Pentecostal all of a sudden or the, the hand raising was to uh, point at the screen. I appreciate that. That's excellent. So standing firm is the main verb. And this will warm up here in a moment. And the main verb is then expanded or amplified or explained or defined with the participle. And I want to make sure we're clear on this so we don't lose track of it. I think a lot of confusion arises when people misapply something that should be pretty straightforward grammatically in the text. All right, there we go. So standing firm is a present active indicative verb. All right. And if that doesn't mean anything to you right now, don't worry about it, but just understand it's, a, it's the main verb of the, of the sentence. And so it's present tense, it's continuous action in present time, active voice, the person's the, the one doing the activity in the verb, indicative mood, it's the, the mood of reality. This is what's happening. And this is what Paul wants to hear, that whether I come and see you or remain absent, reading here from Philippians 1.27, uh, whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm. And so that's what he wants to hear. That's the reality of what he expects to hear from the the Philippian saints. 
and uh, that expression is further modified with uh, with one mind uh, with one spirit uh, in one spirit with one mind and so we have those modifiers that go with it and so that's what we were studying on Wednesday and detailing that um, talking about the present active uh, indicative of steketa showing the uh, the term steko and uh, everything that represents and it's only used nine times so it doesn't take a a tremendous length of, of study to look at each of those passages in Romans, 1 Corinthians, Galatians, and we're familiar with them, many of them anyway, because we this was the conclusion to 1 Corinthians, is that fivefold imperative there to stand firm in the faith, to act like men, be strong, that all that you do be done in love. It's a, it's a powerful conclusion there in 1 Corinthians 16. Likewise in Galatians 5, we had it recently in our Galatians series to stand firm. It was for freedom that Christ set you free, beloved. Therefore keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of of slavery. And that whole exhortation in Galatians to be grace-oriented, not to plunge back into legalism. That's that's issued as a command to stand firm. And so we had teaching on that, quite a bit of it. Then uh, other places, Romans 14, uh, which is always a blessing, Never turn down a chance to look at Romans 14. Or First uh, Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians, these are the places that, uh, that have stako. By the way, it's going to come up again a second time in Philippians uh, at, for the conclusion uh, to introduce Philippians chapter 4. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. And for a congregation to stand firm, uh, the first thing that has to happen is these two women here, Yodi and Sinaki, they've got to get past what it is that's had them uh, at one another, you know, bumping heads as we say. They've had uh, issues between the two of them and that's got to stop. That has to stop and it has to stop now so that uh, the congregation can stand firm. Back to our pa- passage this morning in Philippians one twenty-seven. Uh, you can look at all the nine times that stand firm is used, that stako is used, and that's useful. But here we notice a very unique usage in the sense that this is the one place where the verb stako has the modifiers that it has, where it's modified with in one spirit, with one soul. And uh, that uh, expression of unity, I can't think of how intimate, how much more intimate you could get than to be one spirit, one soul with another person. And that's uh, to, to utilize language of Scripture, to utilize particular idioms. The Bible talks about how you know, physical sexual relationships are one flesh, but our relationship in Christ is specifically a one spirit relationship. And, and the Bible does that. It contrasts the intimacy on the one hand with the, uh, the, that I think you know, we relate to with the intimacy we should relate to with being one spirit with the Lord. And uh, this does the same thing right here that our uh, standing firm happens in one spirit with one soul, with one soul. And then it's striving together for the faith of the gospel. So in in other words, this is an intimate function for a local church. And uh, when you start to appreciate the way local churches come together, when you start to recognize that having a body of Christ and brothers and sisters that love you and pray for you and are there for you, that rebuke you when necessary, that correct you on those occasions, that this is the family that God has designed that will bless us in ways that no one will ever bless us, can also hurt us in ways that no one else can hurt us, because with that intimacy comes the vulnerability, comes the, the, uh, the tenderness there when you're one soul, one spirit with other believers in Christ. So those become useful studies as well. All right, so now we're ready for the next aspect. But again, before we look at sunetheluntas, just to remind ourselves that you have a main verb and then you have a participle. And the participle becomes additional information. It helps to explain. It, it defines. It coincides. You can't separate the activities. If you separate the activities, then you're not really doing the main verb the way that you should be doing the main verb. All right? And so uh, just one short side trip as we proceed, because you see it here in verse 27, you see it also in the Great Commission, so join me in Matthew 28, it's the easiest place to illustrate because it's easy to find and everybody knows it. Matthew 28, the end of the Gospel of Matthew, and taking a look at it here, all right. 
So Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given me in heaven and on earth. That's significant doctrine that goes with that. I won't touch on it this morning, but I encourage you, go get it from the Life of Christ website uh, because if you, if you fail to appreciate the authority uh, principles there, then I think you diminish what the Great Commission is truly doing. All right? Verse 19, on the basis of, of all authority has been given me in heaven and earth, he says, go therefore. And sadly, in the English language, putting go up front like that, and it gets easy to read and easy to preach and easy to emphasize, and it should not be emphasized. It is absolutely not the emphasis of this, of this sentence. It is, it, it is in passing. It is an aorist participle that precedes the action of the main verb and is not an imperative. It is not a command. It is not a command at all. It looks like a command in English, but it's not a command. And so really it should be as you go or where you go, wherever you go, um, because all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, so wherever you go, uh, make disciples. That's the imperative. The imperative is make disciples. And uh, it's the only imperative of the verse. It's the, it's the main verb of the section. It's the only imperative of the, uh, of the section. So make disciples of all nations. But then we get some present participles. There's two of them, present participles, that coincide with the action of the main verb, right? Say it again. The aorist participle precedes the action of the main verb. Present participles coincide with the action of the main verb. And so go is an aorist participle. We're going to put it up front and then we're going to forget about it as you go. We're going to get to the imperative. The imperative is make disciples. And then what goes with that? What goes with that are the present imperatives. And so two things you have to do in order to make disciples. Baptizing them and teaching them. Baptizing them in verse 19 and then teaching them in verse 20. So you have a verb and then you have a couple of ing words, right? Ing verbs. Baptizing, teaching. Okay? So uh, they, they show the contemporaneous activity. They help define the activity. If you're not baptizing them and teaching them, I don't care what you're doing, you're not discipling them, all right? And there's a lot of books on the shelves about Christian, Christian discipleship, and they say everything imaginable except baptizing them and teaching them, all right? Which means they've missed the point of Matthew 28, because uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, those are the participles that define the action of the main verb. So, and, and it's not limited to Greek. We do the same thing in English. I'm doing that right now, okay? Uh, in, in preaching this message, okay? I am explaining and illustrating. And so, you know, you can put those ing verbs on there and they coincide with, with uh, the main verb. So, back to uh, Philippians and you'll see what I'm talking about. So, um, I will hear of you that you stand firm that you stand firm. And that's the main verb, or are standing firm. And then with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. The striving has to happen. If the striving is not happening, you're not standing firm. If the striving isn't happening, then you're not achieving the participle that's supposed to coincide with and define the main verb of the sentence. And so now, we're ready to take a look at what does this mean to strive together? Because that's what the passage is doing in defining what it means to stand firm, all right? So to, to, uh, stand, to strive together, it's an athletic term. In fact, it's not only is it an athletic term, it's where the English athletic word comes from. Soon athleo is the verb. Soon athleo. It, it's a compound. It comes with a prefix of soon connected in front of athleo, okay? And so, you know, if you've ever seen an athlete or know an athlete or been an athlete or used such a, such a word, uh, then you were speaking Greek and didn't realize it. That, uh, well, speaking English, a word that came from this particular Greek uh, verb. And it's not a very common one, not in the New Testament, it's used occasionally. Uh, soon athleo is used here and it's used in chapter 4. And then the verb by itself, athleo, is only used in one verse. It's used twice in the same verse. It's used in uh, 2 Timothy 2.5. But understand it as a word that uh, does, doesn't happen by itself. Uh, you don't accidentally compete in an athletic competition. Uh, that athletics requires preparation, training, 
uh, work, effort, all right? And uh, this is not a spectator sport, all right? Standing firm in the faith does not mean watching other believers uh, pass their tests and bear fruit, okay? Standing firm in the faith means you are striving together with them, that you are actively participating in this team sport, okay? And that's uh, what we deal with there. So if you're reading the text, it shows up as sunathluntis. Sunathluntis is the present active participle of sunathleo. Okay? The verb itself is sunathleo. That's what you're going to find in your dictionary is sunathleo. It's number 4866 is the Strong's number for that. With two uses, both in Philippians. Here in Philippians 1.27 and those aforementioned uh, women that couldn't get along, they used to. They used to get along very well. In fact, Paul calls them his fellow athletes, his fellow strivers together in uh, Philippians 4.3. Um, we're here just a moment ago. It says, uh, verse 2 says, I urge Yodi and I urge Syneche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women, these women who have soon athleod with me, together with Clement also uh, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So he's got a a collection of fellow workers, but those two women in particular were fellow athletes, fellow strivers, fellow um, competing together, striving together, teammates in the struggle, we might say. Help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. And so this is our joy, all right? This is our recognition that yes, we are called to run our race, yes, we are called to finish our course, but it's not an individual competition. We're not alone in this, that it is a team sport, that we have fellow athletes, we have fellow members of the body that are there to struggle with us in this race. So strive together. The compound is from Athleo and uh, 2 Timothy 2.5 is where we find that. Both uses are in the same verse for athleo. Let me get to 2 Timothy. And um, Paul goes from a military metaphor to an athletic metaphor and then a farming metaphor. He's, uh, <laughs> you know, Paul will hit you with whatever illustration you want and usually it's saying the same thing four or five times all over again. But uh, whichever one sticks, whatever one you connect with, use that. So uh, 2 Timothy 2, you therefore my son be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Not your own strength, not your own might, but strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And this is, our, uh, this is our key verse. I mean, this is what establishes Austin Bible Church as a training ministry, what should establish any local church as a training ministry. You have a faithful man who's going to teach faithful men. They, in turn, will teach others also. And so the day, when the day comes that Pastor Cliff starts training a, a young disciple, that's a reason to rejoice. Or Pastor Dan or anyone that's trained here ought to be in the next generation training the next generation. And uh, we have the pattern there. Because, see, you're not alone in this. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And I just realized uh, that uh, that suffer hardship coincides with that Timothy can expect to have a whole new dimension of conflict opening up as soon as he begins this uh, training ministry that Paul's encouraging him to do here in verse 2. All right. It goes on, verse 4, no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. And so you want undistracted duty, you want undistracted dedication. And what centurion would put up with it if he's got a, uh, you know, a soldier there in his legion that, that uh, says, uh, sorry, I'm not available for battle today. I've I'm uh, moonlighting on the side. I'm doing this other job over here and or whatever. I've got other things going on with my, you know, please let me go. I've got all these excuses for why I can't go to battle today. And that, that just doesn't fly. It doesn't fly with your centurion. It doesn't fly with uh, uh, Caesar and, uh, and so forth. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, 
And this is our uh, athleo, okay? And it's not the compound, you're not competing together, but it's, it's used in the uh, singular use of athleo. If anyone athleos, he does not win the prize unless he athleos according to the rules. And so this, uh, this is the, you know, the Lance Armstrong verse that if you're, if you're a cheater, then uh, go away, okay? Or we're stripping all your prizes, stripping all your, your uh, trophies and everything else and uh, writing your name out of the record books because you're a cheater. And uh, you have to compete according to the rules. And it's similar with, of course, the ministry, with Christianity, that we have rules. We have the New Testament. We have the Bible that shows us what it means to, to run this race, what it means to glorify Christ. And uh, so whichever metaphor you want to use, if the soldier thing works or if the athlete thing works or the farming thing works, in verse 6, the hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. So from the soldier to the athlete to the farmer, Paul is illustrating with a variety of, uh, of different approaches here. And then consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. All right, so uh, this is what we're dealing with, and this is coinciding with standing firm. And notice it's active voice. It's a present active participle. It's active voice, meaning you've got to do it. The subject of the verb has to be the agent that's accomplishing the verb. And so you're doing this actively. And it's not, uh, um, I think, uh, too many times we get that imperative to stand firm and we think it means we don't do anything. We just stand there, right? Just, you know, plant your feet and, and grit your teeth and, and, you know, clench your fists maybe and then, and then just stand there. So, okay, I'm, I'm firm, you know. And it's the idea that, well, if I'm standing there very rigidly, then, then, you know, Satan can't knock me down or knock me over, or, you know, but it, it's still, it just seems like it's a rather passive kind of thing that you're expected to stand firm and then stuff will just bounce off of you. And, and, and I want to disabuse me, myself or you or anyone that, that has that because it's not passive. Stand firm is also in the active voice. You are the subject of that verb as well. And that it's not just a stationary uh, doing nothing kind of thing. When you are standing firm, you are also, this passage defines it, striving together, asun athleo, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And so standing firm is not a stationary, immobile nothingness. Does that make sense? All right. And so uh, we have that as well. Anyway, I think... um, I'm guilty of that. I'm sure others are as well. When you're looking at the armor of God passage, or you're looking at scripture and you think that it's all just defensive. I got a helmet and a shield and a breastplate. So I'm ready now just to absorb all kinds of punishment that uh, I can just be defensive and let hits, you know, stuff will hit me and bounce off and whatever. And the only weapon is the sword of the spirit. And that just seems like, well, why do I have six or five or six defensive items and only one offensive item? And it just seems that stand firm as a... Uh, and resist or kind of a, a stationary thing. Anyway, we need to disabuse ourselves of that and hopefully glean a better recognition that we're on the march, we're on the move, and that's not, uh, that's not different from standing firm. Anyway, so that's what we deal with there. Uh, this team sport, this team sport is, uh, again, it's ente piste tu yangalu, for the faith of the gospel. That's, that's the field that we're playing on in this team sport. It's the faith of the gospel. And so we're all participants in this. And I might not be the one that's preaching the gospel. You might be the one preaching the gospel. But I'm praying for you as you preach the gospel. And then I may not be the one. I may be just planting seeds and somebody else is going to water and somebody else is going is to harvest the crop. That's great. All right, I'm not offended if somebody finally gets saved the fifth time they've heard the gospel and I was one of the first four along the way. That does not hurt my feelings, all right? I'm not bummed out over the fact that, well, you know, dummy, why did it take you so long? And what was wrong with the way I preached it? How come you didn't believe it when I preached it? I'm a better preacher than them. How come, you know, why didn't you get saved when I preached the gospel? See, there's no place for that. It's a team sport. We all win when Christ is being glorified, and we should, we should be thankful for that. All right. And so that's what we deal with there. Give me back now to Philippians. Because with this, you're standing firm, you're striving together, everything is going great, except now you've got opponents, enemies, conflict. 
Is that a problem? <laughs> no, it's normal. In fact, uh, you should be scared if you don't have opponents, if you don't have conflict. If, if, uh, if the unbelievers of this world don't have any problems with what you're doing, I would suspect you're not doing what you should be doing. And that's, uh, that's just a rule of thumb that, uh, that goes with this, all right? Opponents, suffering, and conflict are not alarms but signs. Opponents, suffering, and conflict are not alarms. In other words, a red flag doesn't go up and go, ooh, I'm doing something wrong. No, it's not an alarm at all. You should not be in any way, in not even one way, alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. And that too from God. So it's a sign. It's not an alarm. Don't, don't freak out. Don't act like it's some strange thing, as if some strange thing were happening to you. It's normal. It's very normal. For to you, it is a gift of God's grace for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for Christ's sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. And so this uh, point then, uh, point eight with the subpoints, is uh, going to finish out the chapter for us as we talk about the things that, uh, that should not be alarms, they should be signs. And we should be thankful for those signs. In fact, they're uh, two-sided signs, if you will. It's like, uh, you know, open, closed, you flip it around or whatever. You've got different signs um, depending on what kind of sign. Uh, and that's what we have here. It's a two-sided sign. Destruction for them, but salvation for us. So that's pretty cool. Okay, which side, you know, clearly <laughs> I know what side I want flipped out on pointing at me. I want the, the salvation side pointing at me. And, uh, and that's what we have here. So we have opponents. We have uh, conflict in verse 30, experiencing the same conflict. So guess what? It's nothing new. It's not as if you're experiencing something nobody else in the church age has ever dealt with. It's the same, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to me. See, all testing is common to man. And all ministry teaching uh, conflict is, is common to ministry. And uh, Timothy can expect it. The uh, Philippians can expect it. Uh, anyone who desires to live godly in Christ Jesus can expect it. And Jesus promised that. So we want to get a tackle on this. Let's start with um, alarmed. And well, Let's start with uh, point A here. In even one single way alarmed. <laughs> In even one single way alarmed. Not one. Not one single way. I like that. And that fact, in no way alarmed, in not even one way alarmed, that is the sign. The sign is not being alarmed. Okay, that's the sign. It's the sign for two things. It's the sign, and we'll talk about those two things. It's the indexis, it's the demonstration, it's the sign, it's the proof. The, the fact that you're not alarmed, that's the sign. You ever go through a test, you get halfway through the test, and then you realize, wow, um, this is kind of interesting. Uh, a year ago, this would have freaked me out. You know, two years ago, I would have, I'd have been a complete basket case. And then you start to realize, wait a minute, this is kind of neat. You know, the doctrine's coming alive. I've, the Lord's equipped me for this. And, and just, it hits you all of a sudden. See, and that's the thing, because we don't often see our own growth, you know. Uh, holidays come up and Thanksgiving or Christmas or whatever, and you see some folks you hadn't seen since a year ago, and you go, wow, your kids have really grown up. And, you know, you, you, because there's a distance there and you don't see them very often, it's easier to spot the growth in somebody else than it is to, to spot your own growth. And uh, it, sometimes it's impossible to even spot your own growth until uh, someone points it out to you and says, you know, <laughs> whatever they say. Um, <laughs> all right. Yeah. And then you go, oh, well, yeah, I guess. <laughs> now that you mention it. <clears throat> But see, it's that you have those moments, and it's fun when they happen. I've, I've had it, uh, church members have had it, and going through a test, going through a conflict, 
And, uh, and I've been able to use it because, see, sometimes it doesn't dawn on them until I remind them. And because uh, sometimes they're, they're going through a, a horrible test at the moment and they've never gone through this before. And, uh, and then I stop and say, you know, it's amazing to me, you're handling this very well. And, can, you know, just as your pastor, can I tell you how well I think you're handling this? And say, you know, if this would have happened last year, I, it would have been a different circumstance, okay? I'd have been over here with a couple of deacons and we'd have been really praying hard over something that would have not been going so well. But, uh, but you know, here we are and you're walking by faith and you're in the Word of God and things, uh, it's, it's, you're not alarmed, not, you're not even in one way alarmed. That is the sign. That realization is the sign. And when you realize that you're not alarmed, that's powerful. It's a sign of salvation. Okay, It's a sign of, we'll talk about the experiential salvation for what it is. It's a sign that says, you know what? God's getting me through this test. <laughs> I'm going to pass this test because I'm not alarmed. And then it's also the unbeliever. The unbeliever looks at you and realizes you're not alarmed. And they've been working hard to get you alarmed. They've been dedicated to causing you distress. Like this crowd was causing Paul to, or trying to cause Paul distress and it wasn't working. And when it dawns on them that nothing they throw at you is causing you alarm, that also is a sign. That also is a sign. And even an unbeliever can recognize when there's something there they don't like, something there they can't explain, something there that's thwarting what they're trying to do. And uh, the God they deny or hate, or they're atheists and they say there is no God, but they spend a lot of time hating the God they don't think exists. And, and they're doing what they can to try to tweak you, and it's not tweaking you? That's a sign. That is supposed to slap them in the face and, and uh, wake them up to something, because they're on the path to destruction. They're already, I mean, if you reject the gospel, you're, the, the default for fallen humanity is destruction. And so here's your sign, <laughs> okay? If you know where that comes from. All right. So um, the, the noun is endexis, which I like, endexis. Um, E-N is a prefix. It's an, attached in front of dexis. So there's a verb, dexnumi, that's cognate with this. Um, but endexis, E-N-D-E-I-X-I-S, uh, number 1732 in your Strong's Concordance, you'll find it listed there. Uh, only has four New Testament uses. I put all four of them on the, on the screen. Romans 3, 25 and 26, 2 Corinthians 8, 24 in our passage this morning in Philippians 1, 28. There's also a cognate uh, noun that instead of an, it uses apo as a prefix, apodexis. And it's only used once, uh, but I, I, I like to include it here with endexis as an as a equivalent expression. And that's uh, found in 1 Corinthians 2, 4. Uh, but, but the aspect of deiknumi and the, ax, the aspect of, of uh, deixis, what we're talking about, we're talking about a display. We're talking about something that is on display, something that is seen, something that is illustrated, something that is shown. It's like show and tell, all right? And that's what God does. God is the ultimate show and tell. Because he, that's, the, that's his nature as a father, that's his nature as a creator, that's his nature as a communicator. God wants, to, wants others to see what he's doing, to see it, to understand it, to appreciate it. That's what he's doing. And, and ultimately, that's why he's created. He loves his son. He wants others to love his son as he loves his son. And so we have angels and humans, we have all of creation, and all of it is because the Father loves His Son and wants to show that love for His Son to others, that we can have the same love for His Son that He has. And so these principles, it's, you know, it's, to me it's a glory, it's a, it's a testimony to how humble our God is, that He wants to show things that we can understand, and uh, that, he, that He deigns to do that. You know, he's not so high and mighty that he doesn't take the time to show us these glories and these truths and these things. So you'll notice this. In fact, theologically, this is significant in Romans chapter 3, that not only does he justify us, but he shows that he is qualified to be the justifier. And so as a demonstration, God is demonstrating so many things in what he does. 
Romans 3, 25 and 26. And, and this, this might be a bit of a side trip on this. I don't mind doing it because I think it's an overall principle. That God is not only righteous in all things, but He exhibits that righteousness in full display. He shows it so that the angels see it, humans see it, elect angels, fallen angels, every knee will, will bend, every tongue will confess. Because God is showing all things right up to the point of, of the great white throne. And then He's going to keep showing for the thousand generations and the new heavens and the new earth. God continues to show His righteousness. God continues to show for a thousand generations the, the grace and the wisdom of His plan. Death is defeated and He shows that it's defeated for a thousand generations of those who love Jesus Christ without dying, without sinning. It's a marvelous display. So we see it here in Romans 3 that um, even back up to verse 21, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. <laughs> All right? What's manifestation? It's a display. It's being shown. It's being seen. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets. You get to confirm things with two or three witnesses, and so there you have it. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. Doesn't matter if you're Jew, Gentile, male, female, whatever. When you believe in Jesus Christ, you're saved. We're justified by faith. Simple as that. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. There's no other way to be saved. There's no other way to be justified. That's it. It's grace through faith. There you have it. But then it goes on. It doesn't just stop there. All right? I think you can stop there and on a basic level, stop there as a babe and be happy you're saved and that. But when you start to grow and you start to want to see, well, what's the bigger picture here? What are the larger things in view? Well, we start to see it in verses 25 and 26. Whom God displayed publicly. God is displaying, God is showing as a propitiation in His blood through faith. See, Jesus did what He did as a faith exercise. He was exercising faith in His priesthood, accomplishing our redemption. So God displayed publicly a propitiation in His blood through faith to demonstrate, and this is our expression that we have uh, with endixis, to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed. And so there's a struggle, there's an issue, and, and, and Satan might file an accusation or others might say, well, God, you haven't been fair this whole time. Well, on what basis did you pass over the sins previously committed? How was it that you could pass over Old Testament believers' sins? David and Moses and Noah and Daniel, all those guys. How could their sins be passed over before Jesus goes to the cross? How is it that you could atone for them? See, and uh, that, so he puts this on full display to show that he was right for doing so because his plan anticipated, his foreknowledge and his, the, the, the decrees anticipated that this is what the provision would be at the proper time, at the proper time. So he demonstrates his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time. And so now you and I are living in the church age and you and I are living after the fact that when we believe in Jesus Christ we are placing our faith in the Savior who died and rose again on our behalf. We, we believe in Jesus Christ, the Savior who bore our sins on that cross. And so guess what? Our sins are not just passed over. <laughs> our sins are completely removed. Absolutely removed. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so when we believe in Jesus Christ, we are instantaneously justified. Not having sins passed over, but having sins removed. And we get to go to heaven when we die. Absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. Old Testament saints, they didn't go to heaven. Old Testament saints, their sins weren't removed. Their sins were covered. Their sins were passed over. Kafar, atonement, means covered. Okay? And so 
They went to Abraham's bosom. They went to a compartment within Sheol. They went to a compartment that was uh, separated from the torments of Sheol. They were in a separate compartment of comfort, Abraham's bosom, but they were not at home with the Lord. Not until the Lord Himself went to Sheol. Not until the Lord Himself accomplished His work on the cross. He descended. He led captivity captive. He brought forth those Old Testament saints. He translated paradise from Sheol. Now paradise is in the third heaven. He brought them all to glory. And uh, what a marvelous display. And see, the point, the whole point to that, see, is that God's righteousness can't just simply excuse sin. He can't just look at a believer and say, oh, well, I love you, love Trump's uh, righteousness, and we'll just bring you to heaven anyway. The love of God cannot be applied without satisfying the demands of the righteousness of God, the justice of God. And so this is all what's on display with our redemption, see. And this is why he was right, he was just, he was fair to pass over those previous sins, to bless Old Testament saints in Abraham's bosom for the whole time waiting for them to be brought forth into glory. And so uh, a demonstration for the present time so that he would be just, not only that, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so in order to be the justifier he has to, uh, this plan has to be executed, see. In Hebrews right now we're discussing the sanctifier. Those who are sanctified and the one who sanctifies uh, are both from one Father, for which reason he's not ashamed to call them brethren. And so we've been approaching it from a sanctification side. Here it's the justification that's in view. All right. So this is what God does. God puts things on display. He lays it out there. In many ways the entire church age is a display. We are the, the parade. We are the, uh, the, the parade that a conquering general would be given in the Roman Empire. That's us. We are on display. What a, uh, what a blessing that is. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 8.24, another example. Second Corinthians 8.24. And uh, this is in a great Thanksgiving. Paul finally realizes that Titus isn't dead, <laughs> that uh, he's Titus is alive and well. The Corinthians didn't murder him. They weren't all mad, that they were actually repentant, that uh, they were looking forward to seeing Paul again. So Titus is alive and he brings good news and Paul couldn't be happier. And so he's going to send Titus back along with a brother um, that's mentioned there in verse 22. We have sent with them our brother, whom we have often tested and found diligent in many things, but now even more diligent because of his great confidence in you. And as for Titus, he is my partner, my fellow worker among you. As for our brethren, they are messengers of the churches, a glory to Christ. And I think that's uh, apostello there. I think that's the, uh, the messengers in that verse. Anyway, then verse 24, Therefore openly before the churches... Show them the proof of your love. And this is the demonstration. This is the indexis, the demonstration, the sign, and the proof. So therefore, openly before the churches, show them the indexis of your love and our reason for boasting about you. Okay? And that's the usage of it there. It's a demonstration. Make manifest. If they're going to be on board, if they're going to join with this famine relief effort, if they're, going to, if they're going to add their funds to the Macedonian funds for the, the love offering that's going to Jerusalem, then, uh, then they're free to do that. They're welcome to do that. And as they do that, that becomes the proof. That's the demonstration. That's exhibit A of, uh, of their love and uh, their repentance and our reason for boasting about you. And that bridges into chapter 9 then that describes the, the money that's being collected and sent to... Uh, to Jerusalem. All right, so a demonstration, a sign, a proof. Anyone can say they have love, but are you exhibiting it? Are you showing it in uh, that regard? Finally then, 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 2, 4. Now this one, like I said, is not indexis, but it's a cognate. It uses the apo prefix instead of the n prefix. But 1 Corinthians 2, 4 
I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, clearly, because he was with them in weakness and in fear and in trembling. <laughs> he, he wasn't dazzling them with his homiletics when he first arrived in, uh, in Corinth. But in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So when Paul got up, and the last thing in the world he wanted to do was preach, but he got up and he preached, and that was a demonstration. That was a demonstration that he's, he fears the Lord more than he fears men, that he fears God, that he is staying faithful in the ministry. This is what it means to be in season or out of season, that uh, you're going to be faithful to preach the word, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction, especially on days that uh, you'd, you'd rather be somewhere else. <laughs> okay? And that's, that's where he was. He, he was essentially crawling out of Athens when they're laughing at him for the Mars Hill sermon. And he gets to Corinth and he doesn't know anybody. His whole team is scattered from, from Luke to uh, Timothy to, uh, uh, I mean, just everybody's scattered. And he's by himself. And uh, then he comes crawling into uh, to Corinth and he describes it here in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. Thankfully, thankfully of course, God had Priscilla and Aquila waiting for him. <laughs> and he gets to meet two of the dearest friends he'll ever make. A husband and wife team there that had been kicked out of Rome and are waiting for him in, uh, don't even know they're waiting for him, but they happen to be tent makers. Paul happens to be a tent maker and they just click on day one and, and, uh, there's no looking back, but before he meets them, it's, it's pretty grim. And, um, even at the early part of the chapter here, when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That kind of introduces then when it says, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. So the whole background for that second missionary journey, Acts chapter 18, when Paul comes into into Corinth is uh, described right here in this way. But as a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. (laughs) And I like to think we have lots of those around here. That uh, Austin Bible Church is saturated with examples with demonstrations, with you know, ecnumies or ecdesis or apodexis. We got plenty of examples of believers that are fools for Christ's sake that uh, that have borne fruit despite uh, who and what they are. (laughs) Because by the grace of God we are what we are. And by the grace of God we do what we do. And the fact that that God does what He does in and through us for His good pleasure is no wonder He who sits in the heavens laughs. I'd be laughing too. It's, it's, it's hilarious to see what God does with imperfect tools, still bringing about perfect results. It is, uh, it is an absolute thrill, I think, for God to do these kind of things. So um, it's a sign for two things. Not being alarmed is a sign for two things. It's a sign of destruction for them and salvation for us. Destruction for them and salvation for us. Same sign. The same sign not being alarmed is the same sign. So uh, not being alarmed, that's an indicator. (laughs) Okay? Pay attention. Here's your sign. Okay? Because as soon as that happens, you can have your eyes open and look at that and get all excited and say, wow, God's with me. I'm saved. I'm going to be saved through this test, experiential sanctification. I'm going to pass this test. God's going to bear fruit through this. Because I'm not alarmed. I'm absolutely not alarmed. And in some ways, you just kind of, maybe you can't explain it. You go, wow, this should really be freaking me out right now. <laughs> you know? Uh, we learned that Sharon was pregnant with our first child um, the day my household goods arrived from the army. And so we had separated from the army. We had, um, my, the, here come the household goods, and we're accepting delivery of, uh, of, of all that we own. And uh, that's the day we learned that Sharon was pregnant. So, wow, no income, no job, no army. Maybe I should have re-enlisted. Uh, <laughs> okay, Lord, what next? <laughs> all right. And uh, you think, wow. And you're not alarmed. Why? 
because there's the peace that surpasseth all understanding. There's the, there's the assurance that comes from being in the will of God because I knew I wasn't going to have a career in the, in the military. I knew that I was going to be a pastor someday. And so we were leaving one thing behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. And as we reach forward to what lies ahead, so yeah, some, here, we'll throw a baby in the mix and deal with that, all right? And so uh, there you go. And when you're not alarmed, you have a sign. When you're not alarmed, that is the sign. God says, hey, look at that, I'm with you. Okay, and that's a sign. So uh, it's a sign of salvation for us. It's a sign of destruction for them. Uh, for destruction, we've got to deal with Apollyon. We've got to deal with Apollea. We've got to deal with, uh, you can even have some fun with this and really plunge into some Greek mythology if you want to because um, Apollo is uh, the, the Greek god there. But uh, uh, Apollyon is the angel of destruction and he's the one that's going to be given the key of the abyss and um, different things there. But the, the noun is Apollea. Apollea, A-P-O-L-E-I-A, Apollea. And it does have 18 uses. I don't think I've listed all 18 of them. Maybe I did. Um, six, seven, eight. I only listed eight of them. Um, but it's, this is what we're saved from, right? A verb related to, to destruction is the verb to perish. That uh, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, whoever believeth in Him should not perish. And perish is the verb that goes with this noun that means destruction, okay? And so this destruction, we're not slated for destruction. We're not destined for destruction. We are those that have been delivered from destruction. We are His redeemed. We are His set-apart ones. We belong to Him. And so anything that heads towards destruction, we want no part of that. Experientially, we want no part of that. And uh, you'll, understand, you'll understand it there, all right? And so when you, when you break it down this way between the saved and the lost, the, the living ones versus the perishing ones, I mean, it just draws the line in the sand. It becomes a, a black and white issue. It becomes an absolute issue. And thank God for that. When it's black and white, I think it's simple, <laughs> okay? And so you got two sides to that coin. Which, which side are we looking at? And uh, you're either saved or you're lost. How about that? You're either headed to heaven or you're headed to hell, and there's no middle ground. And, uh, and, and the reason I know, I mean, it's fun to teach this and it's a thrill to understand this because it's so hated by our, our adversary, the devil. He's constantly, constantly trying to paint with uh, this nuance and trying to show you, oh, you're too black and white and oh, you got to be more sophisticated and oh, you're too simple-minded and there's, there's degrees of this and degrees of that and, they, and, and Satan just loves doing that. I think because he's the author of confusion. I think it's because he wants to get our eyes off of what they want to be, where where God wants to keep our eyes, you see. And so it is simple. You're saved or you're lost. You're in fellowship or you're out of fellowship. I mean, you're either walking in the light or you're walking in the darkness. It's, it's, It's an absolute issue every time you're looking at these things. And, uh, anyway. So it kind of becomes amusing to me when they shake their fist and they say, there are no absolutes. You know, and they don't, they're, they're so lost, they're so blind, it doesn't even sink through their skulls that the very sentence they just uttered as they, shake, as they were shaking their fist, that, it, that itself is an absolute statement when they deny there are no absolutes. They're making an absolute statement. And so it's, logically it's just self-defeating and it's absurd and it's, it's, uh, it would be funnier if it wasn't so tragic at how sad it is that, that they're, they're on that path. Speaking of that path, the Bible illustrates it in Matthew 7. Matthew 7 and verse 13. Because uh, you and I are in the minority. You and I are in the few. And we are the chosen few, right? We are the few. And uh, the hoi polloi are the many. The hoi polloi are headed in a totally different direction. And uh, we're told in Matthew seven thirteen, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to Apollea. The gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to Apollea. And so there you have it. And the wider the gate, man, floodgates, anyone can just rush through there and many of them do. goes on to say, and narrow is... Uh, 
for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. So there's our contrast. And uh, as a proportion, how many is many and how few is few, no numbers are given here, you don't need to give numbers. But uh, I think it's overwhelming that uh, many is many and few are few. So, uh, you know, it's, it's not just a majority, not just a simple majority. It's, it doesn't say most, it says many. So it's not 50% plus one, it's, it's a large majority. Many. And how many uh, are saved? It's a few, it's a remnant. So, uh, you know, you look at six billion people on the planet today, how many are regenerate? I think it's a, it's a fraction, it's a small fraction. And that includes, I think, a lot of churchy people that are religious and they're not regenerate. They're not born again. They're going to stand before the Lord at the great white throne and say, Lord, Lord, I did this, this, and this, and I did these other things, and why am I in hell? <laughs> why am I going to the lake of fire? Because I've done so much for you, Jesus. And he says, depart from me, I never knew you. There are a lot of religious people out there, churchy people, moral people, but they're not saved by grace through faith. And it's, it's a narrow gate, and few there are who find it. So that's our first introduction to Apollea. Um, there's some curious ones in John 17 and 2 Thessalonians 2 because it's a title for Judas Iscariot. It's a title for Antichrist. In John uh, 17, Jesus is praying for his disciples and he says, you know, I've got, I've got 11 believing disciples and I've got an unbeliever. And the unbeliever that he's got is called the son of Apollea, the son of destruction, the son of perdition, if you like the old English of uh, Elizabethan uh, King James. But um, John seventeen twelve. While I was with them, and this is, this is uh, extraordinary. This is high priestly prayer and he's interceding on behalf of his, uh, his own. And um, he says, uh, I ask on their behalf. These, these are those that you've given me. And, oh man, um, this is so vital. The whole chapter is his priestly prayer. The Lord, our Lord prays for his own. And, and um, he says in verse 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. If you don't know Christ, you don't have eternal life. It comes right down to that. And so he talks about those that he's been given. Uh, in verse 6, I have... Uh, manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and I have kept and they have kept your word. And so they're all believers except for the one. They have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. And uh, they, they have believed that you sent me in verse 8. I uh, ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but on those whom you have given me for they are yours. Now this is huge. In fact, if you try to defend uh, limited atonement, this is a problem. Because uh, this combined with 1 John, I think, ices the cake on unlimited atonement. That there's the world and then there's those that God has given the Son out of the world. And uh, anyway, verse 11, I'm no longer in the world, yet they themselves are in the world. I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name the name which you have given me, that they may be even as we are, may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished. That's our verb, apolumi, that goes with apoleia. Not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, the son of uh, perishing, destruction, so that the Scripture would be fulfilled. The only unbeliever, of course, was Judas Iscariot, uh, the only one that perished. And uh, it's an expression, by the way, the son of Apollea, it only shows up twice. It shows up there for Judas and it shows up, we'll see Wednesday night. No, we won't see Wednesday night. We'll see next time we're together, uh, we'll see that uh, that son of destruction is, uh, is Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians 2-3. Alright? But I'm just out of time. So uh, Lord willing, rapture pending on our next time together, whenever that may be, um, we will resume this study here. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness. Thank you for your mercy, love, and grace. Thank you, Father, for not being alarmed. What a grace provision. What a, uh, what a, what a thrill 
to, uh, to recognize this. And uh, kind of curious to me, Father, when some believers are so insistent, they want to see a sign, they want to see a sign, and, and here's a sign we can have today. We can have all day, every day. Not being alarmed by our opponents, there's a sign. And uh, I pray, Father, that you would open our eyes to see this again and again and again. Father, uh, teach us these doctrines and uh, let us not only understand them academically, but uh, work in us, Father, to make the applications when called upon. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.